トーム・スティーブこんにちはこの番組すごいですねあなたたち超面白い私が番組出てもいいふん<笑>
film, let's just say that if you and I decided that we were going to sit down and write a screenplay and make a movie, <laughs> we would be uh, th- the definition <laughs> of uh, independent. Yes. If you will. Uh, and the process of producing our movie would be a hill very, very difficult to climb. As a matter of fact, it would be so difficult difficult to climb. I'll tell you what the first step in making your own movie. A legit, I'm not talking about you and I go out back with an iPhone and we, we film, you know, a 20-minute short movie of us, you know, whacking each other with sticks or whatever. I'm talking <laughs> about, I'm talking if we wanted to do a legitimate theatrical release movie, even if it was at a film festival for a one-time shot or whatever, uh, the very first step is to get a lawyer. <laughs> that seems like a smart move with any undertaking in the entertainment business of any yep. stripe. Uh, I've looked at it before and many, 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 many places. That's the first step before you say, even, before you even write a screenplay, before you even write a script, yeah. before you even do anything. If you're, if you're driving in your car and on your way to work and you have a concept in your mind, like I want to make this into a movie. Guess what your first step is? Get a lawyer, get a lawyer. <laughs> Yeah. Ask uh, somebody will steal that shit from you as soon as you open your mouth. Ask some schmuck that had the idea for Harry Potter first. Oh yeah. Yeah. I remember there was a lawsuit about that movie, um Who's Talking, you know, with the babies that talked. Yeah. Bruce Willis. That somebody was suing it straight up because they made a short film or something called Surprise Delivery or Special Delivery or something like that. Which mm-hmm. was the exact same concept. Baby coming out, you know, internal monologue. John Travolta. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yes, exactly. They're you know they're just pissed. Like we had B-list washed up celebrities too. No, nothing. No. Well, uh, um, the idea for this episode really came about because I'm interested in this type of thing. I actually, uh, you're pouring a beer, aren't you? Just a little bit. Just a small <laughs> part of a beer. Of a bitch. When it started uh, making noise, I stopped doing it. Well, I decided that after last time when I screwed up the trivia question so bad, I decided. That- <laughs> Drinking during a podcast probably wasn't the best thing. It means I'm ahead. I get to drink. Okay. My and score's fact, ahead. <laughs> and it doesn't matter that I was stone cold sober the whole time, but whatever. <laughs> so um, I actually, in high school, before, well, early on in high school, I I, uh, I wanted to make movies. That was what I wanted to do. Uh-huh. Went so far as to um, look at colleges out in California and had a, a half, a harebrained <clears throat> scheme to live in Florida with friends of the family for a while so I could go to college and get some sort of status of residence and then go on the cheap. And now, now looking back, I'm glad I didn't do that. I, you know, it's, it was a dream that was crushed and, you know, sad story that I could probably write into a script and then make a movie (laughs) about it. But, uh, I, I've always been interested in it. Were you uh, one of those kids that you got a you know handheld camcorder when you were younger and just started making all kinds of movies with your friends? Well, uh, no. Because <laughs> I, I did not have a dream to be a filmmaker, but I did do that. Me and my brother and our friends have multiple videotapes full of just stupid, goofy, us screwing around trying to do special effects by pausing the screen, you know, pausing the tape. Then somebody moves off frame and then, ooh, he disappeared. Yeah. <laughs> that was a... We- and I'll be all special effects as the disappearing person. Um, I I did do that, but in not in any type of you know structured. There was there was nobody sitting down writing a script, talking about what we were going to do. Um, we're all ad lib, baby. 
Yeah. <laughs> Let the that, comedy flow, you know, naturally. <laughs> As your lawyer, I recommend you do not digitize <laughs> those and put them on YouTube. <laughs> it will help your career immensely to not do that. Um, yeah, that's... No, we had access to a a camcorder back in the Stone Age, and we did do some stuff, but it certainly wasn't anything that we thought was. (laughs) Trying to be quiet. Yeah, that's okay. (laughs) Uh, All right, here we go. There it is. Great. All right. Um, But I've always had a, a good interest in it. So. When you think of a movie, when when I'd say the majority of people, when they think of a movie, they probably have a concept and an understanding that there's a production involved and they've probably seen enough movies about movies being made that they understand about backlots and studios and contracts and things like that. Right. But it's, it's actually way bigger than that. And far more interesting if you go back, 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 way back in time. Do you know who owned uh, and operated the first movie studio? This so is the name the- that. Yeah, this is not the official trivia question, right? Okay, so the name that pops in my head is either Universal or Paramount. I'm guessing neither one of those is the correct answer. They are not the correct answer. However, they will Universal, especially, will come into play later, uh-huh. um, big time. Universal has shaped some things that. I guess we'll talk about later. But uh, Thomas Edison actually had the first movie studio, and it was in the final decade of the 1800s. <laughs> so first he invented the light bulb, then he said, I need to make a rom-com. Uh, well, funny you should say that. Uh, he, oh. um, he would invite uh, vaudeville acts to come yeah. in and do their shuck and jive. And then he would turn around and those would play for penny arcade style. And I don't know what it was back then. I doubt that it was a full penny to see <laughs> one of these shows. But back then a penny was pretty. Yeah. You got to spare that. You know, stretch it out. Yeah. But I mean, that's, that was where it was at. Um, how we got to modern Hollywood is there were back when that technology was very, very young. Um, they moved the, the people who were interested in these types of things moved to uh, Southern California because the lighting was the way it was. Uh, mo- or their lighting back in the day, a light bulb really didn't light up too much. It was too dim. So the majority of films um, that were made had to be done during a certain time of the day in a certain type of light. Matter of fact, a lot of those movies back then were made uh, on the rooftops of a lot of the, uh, the buildings out there. And there wasn't, at, the, at that time, there weren't technically movie studios like we're used to. That, became, that came along later when they decided that they needed to build high walls to keep you know people out and <laughs> those types of things. Um, so I know one percenters elitist is why we get to enjoy movies. Yeah, today. yeah. But um, so then they people also moved there to escape Edison's uh, patents. He had yeah. kind of a corner on the market on a lot of the technology he was using and ideas he was stealing. <coughs> Nikolai Tesla, and yeah, uh, yeah. holy crap! <laughs> <laughs> so he was a cutthroat kind of individual when it came to that kind of thing. So they escaped. Yes. They escaped all that BS, moved to Southern California, 
where they could get away with doing what they were doing, uh, take advantage of the light, and then up popped an industry. Yeah. And they started to make money. And when they started making money, they started saying, hey, we want to do this more. So they took As one does. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it became a huge cash grab fast. And uh, for instance, <clears throat> these what would later become known as the big five popped up. And you're talking like 20th century. Um, you're talking uh, MGM. Those types of things started happening. Um, Universal. Universal. I, I think Paramount was one of the big five. Universal was one of the small three. Uh-huh. Uh, there was, and at the time, there was a lot of merging going on. So it was something was in flux. And you know, like 20th Century became 20th Century Fox, um, uh, Metro Goldwyn Mayer, all kind of combined to form a big studio. And at the time, they were, like I said, the big five. It's kind of like Time Warner, Comcast. Um, so they're like monopolies. It, it was exactly a monopoly. Yeah. And not just a monopoly, but they were operating kind of... When I say it's like Time Warner and Comcast, they were operating in such a way that, hey, you stay out of my way, I'll stay out of your way, and we'll make <laughs> a buttload of money. Collaboration. Um, so they employed people kind of in a way that was f- shitty. <laughs> uh, they, As one does. <laughs> yeah, they um, they would hold... A contract back then was uh, kind of a different monster. And they would... Uh, celebrities at the time were not what celebrities are today. Uh, so they would take a star, okay? Oh, I, I think I've heard of it. Like, you like, were owned by the studio. You were, you were property yeah. of the studio. Right. And they, a typical contract was somewhere around seven years. They controlled your life completely. It's they, like, instead of, we think you're right for this part is, we got you on a contract for 20 movies. You're going to do 20 movies no matter what. Yes. We are going, like it or not. We are going to squeeze 20 movies out of you. I mean, and you have no say in the matter. Not only that, they were uh, they took over their pers- uh, personal lives. So um, they were arranged marriages, arranged relationships, arranged wow. breakups. There were yeah they they tortured people. Um, you're gonna go sleep with Howard Hughes, and you're gonna like it. <laughs> yeah, but how am I how am I gonna get paid for this? Um, <laughs> but anyway, it was an absolute. <clears throat> Like, I'm not even painting a bad picture of them. I'm saying that they were terrible people yeah, to yeah. to their, quote-unquote, property, their stars. Um, and, you know, there was probably a lot of fame seekers, a lot of people that enjoyed that in order to fulfill whatever they had going on in their life that they wanted. Um, you will always you know. look... You always have people that will pay any price to be celebrities. Like, look at today, the untold hordes that are willing to humiliate themselves abjectly on TV mm-hmm. just to be on TV. Right. So, and yeah. and I don't think that people have changed all that much. I mean, things right. change, but back then you'd have people that were a, a born entertainer that wanted to break through, and there was an opportunity to be signed to a really good contract. And once they had you, they had you. And it wasn't until... Mid nineteen forties, World War Two style, and there were huge, huge shakeups. Betty P- 
Page, I think, was one of the first to go to England. She broke her contract and went to England <laughs> and filmed, did some films there. Uh, and that was that was at a time when they would blackball you and you know, you would never want to show your face ever again. Right. But she had a little bit of a following and she filed paperwork in the <clears throat> English courts and eventually she came back and lost and they blackballed her and, you know, did terrible things to her rep- reputation and those types of things. But then it was Olivia de Havilland, I think in 1947, 48, that really busted the thing wide open. Hmm. She did. She refused to do things. She was under contract. She refused and um, took it to court. And in nineteen, it was definitely in nineteen forty-eight. The Supreme Court got involved. Um, really? Yep. Uh, and I can't remember exactly what the law is off the top of my head, but it was a big antitrust uh, monopoly bashing. Here we go. This is going to change the way things operate. And. There were a lot of things put into place to protect celebrities, protect oh. the quote unquote property. So um, they had to, the movie studios. See, back then, and we'll get into this a little bit later about distribution, but back then, the movie studio owned everything. Okay. So they like owned the venues, like as well, right? They owned oh. the theaters. They, uh, and that was, I mean, I'm sure the control, they needed the control to make all the money, but that also, aided in them getting uh, movies out to people so people could see it. Um, let's see. So um, that that actually was how this whole thing came about with the antitrust was the U.S. government stepped in. The Supreme Court stepped in. Um, part of what they were thinking was they saw in World War II how much influence movies People parking their ass in the seats yeah. and watching uh, a movie and watching the news before a movie and watching the propaganda. And yeah, the, the propaganda machine was pretty strong. Yes. Now, the U.S. government saw what the Nazis did and how they brainwashed people and how they got everybody to think alike. And part of that was the theater. So um, <laughs> there's a there's a illusion you can make to that to the modern day somewhere there but that'd be a different podcast (laughs) yeah i mean and i don't want to get too political but i will say that i mean for the long forever uh how hollywood goes is how the culture goes right exactly the brainwashing and and just to take a quick time out and kind of talk about it a little bit um i've had this argument and one of my arguments about um gun ownership is uh to to some people that i feel um, are anti-gun. I, I've got a really close friend of mine um, that is no longer a close friend of mine. And it, what that stems from is their inability to um, understand that gun ownership is just as much a culture as it is anything else that's a culture. Um, I oh, yeah. I own guns and I'm under no illusion. I know that I live in a fantasy world. I, I live in this state of preparedness where somebody's going to jump out from behind me in an alleyway and I'm going to be able to save my own life by shooting, shooting them. You know what I mean? And I understand that that's a fantasy and I, maybe some people don't understand it's a fantasy. Um, I'm not hoping it happens to me. That's not what I'm getting at. I don't, I don't sit around thinking that God, I wish somebody would jump out from behind me so I could shoot them. I don't want to take another person's life. As a matter of fact, I don't know how that would affect me, but I know it would be negative. Um, But I, I also, have a certain amount of fear 
that I'm not going to be able to protect myself and not going to be able to protect my family. Thus, uh, this irrational fear of having something bad happen to me just lives in my head and I have to own a gun because of it. Um, everything else, anybody that tells you differently is fooling themselves. But anyway, again, yeah, well, I'm way off on a tangent. But I, what I was saying well, is there's there's a gun culture in Hollywood, uh, just like there was a cigarette smoking culture in Hollywood. And when they decided that they didn't want people to smoke anymore, they changed the culture. And it was done through entertainment. It wasn't done through putting warnings on cigarette packs. Sorry, doesn't work. But when Hollywood changed, it wasn't cool to smoke anymore. Guess what? It wasn't cool to smoke anymore. So until uh, until Hollywood changes the fact that guns are dangerous and you know takes changes the culture, uh, guns are going to stay. And that's just the way it's going to be. That one's going to be rough, though. I mean, can you imagine any... At least any modern setting action movie without guns. No, just, it, it, I can't it, imagine. Right. And that's what I'm How saying. How would they change it? Yeah. There's no way they could because that would, they'd be shooting themselves in the foot. No pun intended. And, <laughs> uh, because so much of their entertainment relies on uh, guns. And yes. I mean, you could almost make, if you were on the other side of the argument, the anti gun. You could almost say the reason why guns are so pervasive is the Hollywood culture, is the uh, cowboy mentality that was fostered by Hollywood. Right, and that's exactly my point. My my point is is that it's a culture, and until Hollywood changes it, the the masses aren't going to change it because right, Hollywood the the percentage of people it. that are out there that are in actual danger and will need a firearm to protect themselves that percentage is minute compared to the amount of people that actually own guns and hope it never happens to them but will be ready when it does and it never the, will but the thing you, i always say oh, i just real quick the thing i always say about that is and this is is a tangent is that somebody that's staunchly staunchly anti gun that you know wants to mall banned illegal something like that i mean they're looking at you and they're saying because i'm safe now i feel like i'm going to always be safe you know right because right. society keeps me protected now, I feel like society will always keep me protected. Like, right. I will say this, and people that know me maybe think I'm committing some kind of blasphemy, but if you think that you owning a gun is going to keep the government from taking your gun, then you're fooling yourself. Right. But, but you owning a gun might protect your family from something like unexpected... A, a home invasion or a carjacking. Natural disaster. You know, natural disaster, like, yeah. You're not going to shoot I mean, a hurricane, but you can shoot the people that are going to loot you after a hurricane, you know? Right, right. So yeah, that was quite a long tangent about Hollywood. Yeah, that was. And that Hollywood. was political. We try to steer away from that, but Well, yeah. Anyway. Uh but that that is an example of Hollywood shaping culture. Which the government was very, 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 very afraid of. Now, the government couldn't get involved and say, listen, you're only gonna put stuff on there that we like. But they were going to shake things up to make it so or to handicap them so they would not be able to um, put things out easily. Now, let me ask you a question, though. Are you thinking the monopoly busting of the studios is a good thing or a bad thing overall? Well, uh, in hindsight, I think it's a good thing. At the time, I probably would have said, oh, they're, you know, government stepping on the, you know, private sector. You know, I probably would have said some bullshit like that. But um, looking back, it has to have been a good thing because yeah. the treatment of the people, because it wasn't just actors, it was crew. It was, you know, it, a lot of things came out of it, um, like the Screen Actors Guild and uh, the MPAA and 
you know, a lot of things came out of it that, you know, probably a lot of jobs. Something I'm going to talk about a little bit is once the Supreme Court said, you've got to give up something. You can't do it this way. Because the way they were doing it was, uh, we make movies, then we take the movies to our theater, and we do what we want with these people that, you know, mm-hmm. all the way from the guy that sweeps the floor in the studio to the person selling popcorn at the movie theater, uh, we own you. And you're going to do what we say, and you're going to do it the way we say it, and you're going to like it and get paid nothing for it. And, you know, I, I suppose I suppose that's a good thing to have people have choices and to unionize and to make sure that they're getting treated fairly. And um, a lot of jobs have been created because of it. So I guess in the long run from my very small window, I'd say that it was probably a good thing because well, it, it was huge. This is what I always say when it comes to something like that. Movies, uh, you know, the economy in general, maybe it's another tangent, but if I'm usually, you know, government and private businesses should stay far away from each other and never the twain shall meet, except when it comes to monopolies, because monopolies, I feel, choke the life out of everything. Because if you look at the state of movies today, or more especially if you look at television today, we've briefly talked about this, how we're living in the golden golden age of television. It's because of competition. Because when well, you break up the monolithic conglomerates, they have to compete with each other to get your dollars and eyeballs and well, whatever. This is my second point, or the second part of this story, I guess, chapter two. This would be the second act. The second <laughs> act is, had the Supreme Court not stepped in, had they not been broken up, they would have within 15 years, and it probably would have been devastating to the industry. Um, I say that because television came along. Oh, right. And only one studio truly adapted, and that was Universal. But uh, to go back to what I was saying before, um, the Supreme Court stepped in, broke them up, and they had to make some concessions. And one of them was distribution. So movie studios could no longer control the theaters. And uh, the way movies got there changed. Movie studios still tried to um, screw with the movie theaters by doing something called uh, block booking. And that was... um, they tried to well. They, what they would do is they would send like seven movies. Okay, yeah. If you want to watch this one, you're gonna watch these six too, something like that. Re- yeah, okay. Regardless of content, regardless of quality, right? Here's, here's this block of movies. You got to play them all. Cable TV. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's exactly the way it is. You want this one? You got to have this one. Yeah, and uh, that was eventually squashed too. But. Um, what ended up eventually happening was television came along and the movie studios ignored it and did not, <laughs> they, they did not take it seriously. And it was, I'd say it was just a lack of seeing the future. And I can't really hold that against them because when you look at the origin of TV and you look at how first TVs came about, you, you're talking about like a six to eight inch screen, black and white, with like an hour's worth of scratchy programming a day. Right. You had to adjust the antenna. You had to. It was, it was, yeah. you know, a very small screen. It was black and white. It was staticky. And the programming was literally like from two to three this afternoon, you're going to be able to watch, you know, this dumb thing that we're going to put on the television. <laughs> you know, I can see forward thinkers, you know, you, you would definitely have the people that would never give up the radio. But 
that changed when they started taking radio programs and putting them on TV. Yep. And people were then able to, you know, watch their favorite, like, you know, Bonanza. and I can the, see the Lone Ranger. Yeah, yeah, the Lone Ranger, stuff like that. So uh, one studio, um, Universal, had that type of forethought, and they bought everything up. They, you know, when everything else was closing their doors, they were opening them and taking in content and doing it that way. So they thrived when others were scrambling to make things work after a, a huge blow by the Supreme Court. So that's basically the history of how um, movies came about to modern time. If you fast forward to um, 60s and 70s, uh, you were you were getting movies in a different way, different quality movies. Matter of fact, uh, fun fact, you know what a B-movie is? Was it like the second movie they showed in a theater, like after the feature film, something like yeah. that? Yeah. So you had the A movie and the B movie. And yeah. the A movie was the quality program. It was the one with the good actors, good actresses. It was good writing. It was filmed very, very well on a high budget. And then the second part of the double feature would be the B movie. And the yeah. B movie would be low budget. It would it would be terrible. <laughs> You're here anyway. Just stay here and keep watching this. Yeah. And and movies back then weren't as long as they are now. Yeah. But I mean, you could enjoy a double feature in a, in two and a half, three hours. Um, and anyway, that was that's where the B movie came from. And then these B movies became cherished. They the people started loving the B movie because <laughs> that's where you could be creative. You weren't so shackled it was, by what the studio wanted you to do. You could you know like, this is the B movie, whatever, go crazy. Yeah. yeah. So um, how many giant crab suits do we have? Let's do this. <laughs> If we film the crabs from this perspective, they look giant and they're eating people. Uh, <laughs> and they're aliens from Mars, by the way. They came That's here right. in their crab spaceship. Uh, I love... How many puppeteers do we have on staff? <laughs> honestly, I grew up watching B-movies and loving the shit out of them. I USA Up All Night was like oh crack God. for me with <laughs> Gilbert Godfrey. Yep. <laughs> um, I loved I loved that show. There was there were a lot of shows... Or, uh, like the Sunday ABC Sunday movie, you know, Sunday morning movie or something like that. Um, I can't remember. There was another show that we had locally here that played. B well, you always had stuff like like Elvira, Mistress of the Night was yep. introduced to schlocky horror movies all the time. Yep, and I loved it. Uh, loved every Elvira. second of it. Yeah, she still looks pretty good. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all makeup, but you know, so what? It was all it was all makeup back then too. Uh, <laughs> But then you get into the Hollywood boom of the 80s and like mid 70s, late 70s, early 80s. You had these um, huge what they call tentpole movies, mm-hmm. the, you know, blockbusters. I don't know what other words, other words you can use for them. But what is it that gets to the first blockbuster? That was Jaws, right? Jaws. Jaws was the first one that I be- I believe it was the first one, but I mean then you just had a domino effect with and it was right. coming out of this core group of people in Hollywood that you know were really on a roll making incredible movies. Steven you know, Spielberg, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas. Um, another fun fact: speaking of payment and pe- and treatment during um, the filming of American Graffiti. George Lucas did that on such a shoestring budget that he couldn't pay some people <laughs> and actually paid them in credits. 
Oh my god! Well, I'll, I'll make you famous. <laughs> I will, and you know what? It probably paid off for most of them. Like, like I said, people will do whatever it takes to get their fifteen minutes to get their name up there. But if you're a crew member and you worked on this movie with George Lucas and it was a fantastic movie, you know that's probably going to up your worth yeah. a little bit. And in the industry, when there, I was the key grip on American Graffiti. Yeah, you better I give was, me a job. Yeah, I was the gaffer. <laughs> I was the best boy. Yeah, best boy. <laughs> craft services nobody cra- nobody served those crafts like i did yeah we'll talk about that later actually i i've got a little craft snippet. craft craft services catering but um where was i in the 80s early 80s and and beyond you had huge movies being made um you know the star wars trilogy um Raiders of the lost ark or indiana jones movies being made uh, huge huge movies and it just changed the way things were done and by that time um it, the industry had morphed quite a bit it had really gotten away from the days of old the what they call the golden age um <laughs> and a lot of people had forgotten about the treatment and uh just, I, the, icon, the icons stood out so that's something. You just look at the old movies like, oh, Gene Kelly was so fashionable and Debonair and Grace Kelly. We just go back to those days and little did know Gene. <laughs> yeah. Grace Kelly and uh They hated uh, life. Yeah, they wanted to die. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, let's make Hollywood great again. What's actually great. But anyway, so when it comes to making a movie, I know you know it. What are the stages of production? Okay, well the research I did says Stage one is development, also appropriately known as development hell. <laughs> yeah, probably accurate. It's where the conception takes place and takes shape and where things get written. The idea gets maybe adapted for something that's already written. <laughs> one thing I saw when I was doing a little bit of research for this, it was like kind of a tongue-in-cheek, cynical kind of comedy thing. So that's stage one. Get an unpaid intern to ruffle through a sheaf of uh, unlooked at submissions from various writers and see what's uh pops out yeah. stage two find the writer convince him crush his soul and convince him to <laughs> work for nothing in fact work for free to do rewrites and then go from there you know controlling the director and the whatnot yeah right. i like how stage one is find the unpaid intern to rifle through some pages to find right. something that i'm not even going for not yeah, even yeah. doing it yourself well it should be said Probably should have started it with this, but um, all of these stages of development uh, or stages of production happen under the umbrella of a production company, mm-hmm. and a production company will be responsible for uh, anything that has to do with producing the movie, making the movie. Um, so you have that first stage, which is development, um, where uh, somebody would be in contact with a production company. Um, and right. and do a lot of the things with pitching and um, trying to get their movie made, a la Goodwill Hunting. And those guys that did Goodwill Hunting, they then, after their success, they created the uh, Greenlight Project. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, wasn't that Matt Damon's doing a reality show about finding up and coming? Yeah, I don't think it's dead though. I think that's something that they do every year. Um, but it's uh, you know, it's it's a way for them to find talent and get movies yeah sure i mean it's gotta come gotta come from somewhere look at american idol a couple of them people actually made it somewhere so it can happen right so um part of the development is um the green light and that is 
finding somebody that is willing to finance this because what it all comes down to is dollars and cents. Now, one thing I wanted to mention, I know you're not a fan. We've talked about this, but I always think it's a little fascinating. Like a, a Hollywood success story, I guess, is uh, Kevin Smith. Like, do you know the story behind Clerks? I I probably do, but I, I don't know it confidently enough to just spout off. So, well, I mean, this is a guy that, you know, if anybody doesn't know Kevin Smith, he made Clerks and Mallrats and Chasing Amy and Dogma. You know, I guarantee you've heard of his movies, if, even if you're not particularly a follower. But his original movie was Clerks, black and white, like the definition of indie films. He made it for, let's see, I got the number here. He made it for $27,575. And that's he, the only way he paid for that. He maxed out like almost 10 credit cards and then sold his comic book collection. And then just got friends to like star in it so he didn't have to pay them anything. Mm-hmm. And that's how he did it. But he had a script, he had an idea, and that's and he made a name for himself. He made a career for himself off of that. Yeah. And this day he's he's kind of a his his name's kind of a joke in certain sectors for frankly some good reasons. Although I'm still considering myself a fan. And but he's a rich guy. This is a guy that has successful in life because he took a chance and finance his own film i don't know that you could do that anymore honestly i'm not sure if you could make that happen like anybody else well and as we'll talk about later these steps um to making a movie it it is it's a it's a tremendous uphill climb and i can't even imagine i don't i don't have any numbers but i don't even know what it would be how many how many scripts are thrown at producers and at famous people actors uh, it's actually a trope. It's a it's a trope in movies to have an actor, a famous person, have somebody slide a script under <laughs> the under the stall in a bath, men's bathroom. Like, hey, we we read my script. We read my script. I've actually well, what, go ahead. I was just saying, what's the running joke at all? It was every waiter you come to has got a script they want to give you. <laughs> right, it's a trope. It's, but, yeah. Um, I I will say that uh, Leslie has a friend that wrote a script and sent it to us and. Didn't make us sign anything, but really put us on notice for a non-disclosure type agreement um, because it was an original idea and it was a script. And she had really done her homework and put this screenplay together in such a way that it, it was legitimate enough for me to believe that that found its way to somebody, to some producer in Hollywood to take a look at it. And I mean, nothing ever came of it, but um you know, she had a dream, and I, I'm a huge fan of people living out their dreams. I, I love a good story where somebody, like, even us doing this podcast, I mean, it makes me feel good. To, this is sure. a happy place for me to think that, you know, we're, we're doing a podcast. or We're doing uh, some good in the world. <laughs> yep. Uh, my wife has a really good friend who uh, has a, a night show, Dan yeah. Cashman. He, he does a, a late-night talk show that's on the air. And I'm, it makes me very happy for him. I love that type of stuff. So anyway. One thing I want to tell you, I forgot I was going to tell you before. I found this out this last week. We work with somebody who has a friend who has a friend that was <laughs> one of the writers on a bunch of episodes of Breaking Bad and a few oh, other things like that. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, you know, six degrees of Hollywood, we're in there. <laughs> I know somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody that wrote for Breaking Bad. See, cool. I know somebody that knows somebody that knows. Yep, that's literally it. I know somebody that knows somebody that is best friends with somebody that wrote for Breaking Bad. Oh, they're best friends too. So, I mean, that's like. Yes. And she's from Maine and she's, you know, big into coming back to Maine and stuff like that. Oh, cool. Um, I can't, and I cannot remember her name to save my life. <laughs> well, just trust me. It it goes a long way to say that 
uh, somebody can have an idea, somebody can write a script, and then that script has to be pitched to somebody that knows somebody, you know, to get it greenlit. If you were going to do something completely independent like uh, Kevin Smith did, I wouldn't say that it's virtually impossible to do nowadays, but probably that movie, he knew he had a good thing on his hands. He... He was sitting on a diamond in the rough. He knew exactly what he had. That's why he maxed out his credit cards. That's why he took the risks that he took. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if you watch Clerics, it, it's not the best movie in the world, but it's certainly no, worth a watch. Part, he had to film it at the place he worked after hours at night. Yeah. That's why the production quality is like it is. But it's good. And he knew it was good. And he took a risk. Funny. And so he was able to do it. And I think what you would see these days... It was more like uh, you come up with a short that you can put on YouTube, like a two-minute, three-minute short that gets enough clicks and likes and goes viral enough that an actual production company would pick it up and make it. That horror movie that just came out, um, uh, Don't Turn Off the Lights. Wait, what was it called? Yeah, I think that. Lights Out. Lights Out. Lights Out, yeah. It was based on a little couple-minute YouTube clip that made it big that people would like. um, The technology is coming our way i mean iphones that one of the pitches of the iphone 7 was that you can film a movie on it matter of fact the commercial showed um some people filming a movie with their phone and it you can get iMovie which is a, a film editing uh software you can get that as an app on your phone so you know it, the somebody savvy enough could very easily break into or tap into something that might be light years ahead of clerks, you know, if they had the right idea. So, but again, you're right. It it's climbing up a pretty big hill. So the second step in making a film is the pre-production and the pre-production is just as important as any of the other stuff, because that's where storyboards are done. That's where, you know, casting is done. That is, there's, there's all kinds of stuff done in pre-production that just the rest of the movie could ultimately suffer if you don't have the right pieces in place. Um, and it's it's fun to watch the DVD extras and to listen to commentary and um, to listen to podcasts that have people being asked like what it was like to work on a certain film and stuff. And just it's it's fascinating to me because these people that make some of the best movies um, just happen to, or they were actors in the best movies just happen to be in the right place at the right time. I mean, you take Harrison Ford being Han Solo. You know, he, yeah, was, he a, was like a carpenter. Painter, so yeah, a carpenter. That's what it was. Yeah, he was yeah. a carpenter on the set and it was like, Hey, you know, let's, let's do this. So he did it and it worked out. Pr- I mean, he's fucking Han Solo. <laughs> There's nobody else that could have been Han Solo. Everybody knows who Harrison Ford is. Yeah. Yeah. But um, casting something you mentioned it makes me I look I I found this in the midst of my research because storyboards I was fascinated by because I didn't realize I'm not one to watch a lot of DVD extras and I didn't realize this was a thing until maybe five or six years ago where they actually have somebody essentially draw a comic mm-hmm. of what they think the movie should look like yeah and I remember thinking at the time like this is the greatest job ever like you get to create a movie before the movie's made. Mm-hmm. But I looked it up. If you're a professional artist that does storyboards, you're making about $40,000 a year if you're lucky. If you're really good or really in demand, you can get higher. You know, like maybe the top, top end, you're making 90000 Yeah. But for as many millions as a blockbuster movie's making, the guy that's actually the first person to bring it together to go into a cohesive idea and vision, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just going to write you a check and then just go fuck yourself. <laughs> go walk okay. away. All right. Well, that brings up a really good point. Um, 
the producers of the movie. So you you go to a production company like uh, Amblin Entertainment with Steven Spielberg or Joel Silver Productions. You know, there are all these production companies. Bad Robot. Bad Robot, J.J. Abrams, um, that will, you know, make your film for you, essentially. But what it boils down to is there are several types of producers. So... There's let's just the executive producer, mm-hmm. the executive producer. There can be multiple executive producers on a movie that basically tells me that this person has invested cash. Yeah, that's and what that it, might just be it. Right. There are there. Um, I was listening to a podcast the other day and there was a guy who made he his friends were making a movie. And they were running short of funds and were going to fall short of, you know, making the movie. And this guy came up with some cash. He he went to his hometown where they were going to do shoot some scenes. He did a fundraiser of some kind. And he actually came up with like $20,000 or something like that to get the film shot and complete. And he did nothing other than that. And they gave him an executive producer credit. Mm-hmm. So, well, it's also a way to wrangle in some notoriety for your movie. Like if you're a small company, you know, you're established and you're trying to get your movie, you know, people talking about your movie, you're going to find somebody to be on board like Christopher Nolan or Jerry Bruckheimer and then have them just, you know, Hey, just write us a good review or write, you know, come to the set, give us some tips and maybe throw a little money at us. And we're going to say executive producer, you know, Christopher Nolan. And you're thinking, Oh, the guy that made dark Knight and inception yeah. is involved with this movie. It's going to be good. He might've had no creative content contact with it whatsoever. Right. But, can, but he donated 500 bucks to the movie or invested 500 bucks in the movie. Boom. Executive producer, his name's on it. They use that to sell it. Right. So you've got the executive producer. You also have a line producer and a line producer is essentially a bean counter. That's it. <laughs> That's somebody that says, okay, uh, Storyboard artist, we're going to pay $40,000. Casting director, we're going to pay $250,000. Craft services for catering is going to be, you know, for the whole... Because, you know, you've got pre-production, you've got production, you've got (laughs) post-production. You know, those types of things. The line producer is responsible for counting every single penny. No, we're not going to use Gouda. We're going to use Cheese Whiz, and you're all going to like it. <laughs> yeah, motherfuckers, you're going to like it. Uh, that would be the line producer. So the executive producer provides the money. The line producer spends the money, but does uh, does so in a way that it's going to get the movie made because right. a budget for a movie is pretty set in stone. Yeah. It is it is one of those things that they do not tinker with. And I think that that's a little bit of a holdover from the golden age of cinema. That's one of those things where we have to make seven movies this week. <laughs> and <laughs> this is our budget and we can't go over budget because the executive producer has said, I'm giving you this much money and not a cent more. It's like, look, I get your funnest dream since you was a kid was this buddy cop movie about the... Uh... <laughs> about the sloth and the sassy nun, but you're just going to have to do it. You can't yeah. do location shoots in Hawaii for it. I'm just sorry. You can't. Right. It's North Carolina for you. You're going to like it. <laughs> uh, and then there's the associate producer and the associate producer is pretty much everything. Hmm. The associate producer does everything. Literally makes sure the movie gets made, makes sure the director has the right colored director's chair, makes sure <laughs> that the clipboards are the right clipboards for the people that need to do the casting. They it's make crazy. sure 
that there are uh, anti-fatigue mats for the cameraman to stand on. They make sure they'll step in and help edit. They will step in and offer creative consulting. They will hire somebody for creative consulting if you need them to. They'll make sure that the batteries are charged in all the radios. They, The associate producer does everything. These are the people that are going to die an early death is what you're telling me. <laughs> yeah. They're the ones... <laughs> They're the ones that make sure that there's the right kind of cream for the coffee. Oh, my God. I would hate life if I had to have that job. Yep. I'm yep. guessing they're the ones that hope to one day become a director or I would say a producer, executive, something like that. That that's one of those things that you would have to live and breathe Hollywood. It would have to be like your ultimate goal in life to be because they're in charge. I mean, yeah. don't get me wrong. If when the when the associate producer says you do this, you do it because they're the associate producer. <laughs> you know, the executive producer said this, and the line producer said that. I'm telling you the way it is, and I suppose that there's you know there's a difference between successful and unsuccessful films, probably based on who's the associate producer. How the fist fight between the associate producer and the line producer comes out. <laughs> yeah. But that those are essentially the people who produce the movie. Um, the money men, money women, money people, money people, and you know they they'll they'll be there for you know they'll have a seat at the casting table. They will have you know a seat next to the director. They'll have they they do everything. Massages, daily <laughs> affirmations. Yeah. Daily yeah. affirmation massages. We make sure the associate producer makes sure that the mirrors and all the trailers are just one inch bigger, so <laughs> it fits the heads of the actors and actresses. They personally pick up the fluffers. I mean, oh wait, what type of movie we're we talking about now? I mean, some of the associate producers that are heavy hitters are going to these swanky soirees and they hobnob with some of the best actors and actresses in Hollywood. You have to know that there's so much networking that has to be done. Um, scheduling that has to be done. Can you imagine like being standing next to Steven Spielberg, being an actor and standing next to Steven Spielberg and knowing that if you say the right thing, that he might give you a part in a movie that might launch your career or saying the wrong <laughs> thing might mean that you'll exactly. never ever work again. So it's like, if I have to find a giant barrel full of just red M&Ms for Courtney Love, I guess I'll go find a giant barrel full of red M&Ms for Courtney Love. Yeah. So I don't know. It's, I, it's fascinating to me. It's fascinating. Um, so then you have uh, development and pre-production. Then you have just the regular production of the movie that is um, shooting, it. shooting the movie, um, being on location, um, those types of things. And I think that a misconception that I had um, back when I was quite naive about such things, but it seemed to me that it would take forever to do that. And it, and to some degree it does. But what I understand now is so much of the movie is made in pre and post production that yeah. the actual shooting and production of a movie, unless it's some specialized thing where you need to be in an area for like winter and spring and you know, those types of things. I listen to a lot of these uh, DVD commentaries and actors are saying, yeah, I was on set for three days and I did my part and I was done. It's like, holy shit, you got all that done in three days. Like I just watched an unbelievable movie with you that, you know, (laughs) and you were only there for three days uh, as opposed to something like saving private Ryan, where it's actually, 
like a tour of duty, <laughs> you know, where they, <laughs> the yeah, filming is so strenuous and dated after day, after day, after day, after day. I think, um, the Revenant was one of those movies that really blew my mind that there were all these rich characters that were, you know, the core characters were there for the duration, but you had all these other characters that when you think about it, it kind of makes sense, but they really weren't there that long. Well, one thing that uh, maybe is naive of me, but I feel like I was well into my adult year before I realized something about the process of shooting a film is that probably every film in the world is shot completely out of order. Yeah. Like they're not coming in. Okay, this is scene one. We're going to shoot scene one. This is scene two. And then, you know, day 53, they're going to shoot the final scene. It's, we got this actor for this time, so we're going to shoot this scene. We yeah. got this one for this time. And it's complete. This is how, which is a, in the end, a good thing because you get all these movies where the lead actor dies halfway through, like The Crow or like, yeah, I don't know, the one with like the Fast and the Furious movie, something like that, where the one of the lead Paul, actors. Paul Walker. Yeah, exactly. Where the lead actor dies halfway through it. They're like, well, we can finish it. We just got to use some creative photography and some stand ins and some shadows and gloominess and blah, blah, blah. But we already shot the scenes that are important. So this works, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that is a, it's a rare thing. Every once in a while, I'll catch uh, one of these commentaries where somebody says that, that it was shot in sequence. I, I want to only say, I want to say very, very, very few films are ever shot in sequence. Well, I'll go back to, not to beat a dead horse, but that's how he did Clerks, Kevin Smith. He told everybody, we don't have enough money for a film to do this again and again, so treat it like a play. We're going to do this scene, memorize your lines, get it right, and then we'll shoot it. Then we'll move on to the next one, memorize your lines, get it right, so on and so forth. So yes, the indiest of indie films might do it that way, but that's about it. This is I find this interesting um, simply because it's Kubrick, but The Shining was actually shot in sequence. Well, that's Kubrick. He's crazy. Was crazy. Yeah. The Revenant was shot in sequence. Really? American Graffiti. I did know that. I I probably within the last three or four months, I watched American Graffiti with the commentary, and I did know that. Uh, this one does not surprise me in any way, shape, or form. But I love the fact that The Breakfast Club was shot in sequence. <laughs> so and when they started hating each other, then they could end the movie. That does yep. make sense. Yeah. So. There's a few. E.T. E.T. was shot in sequence. So That surprises me too, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah, Platoon, Dawn of the Dead. Uh, okay, so I was dead wrong. <laughs> Maybe not every movie is that shot in sequence. No, it was. This was a. This is a list of fifteen, and I'm sure. I'm sure if there were more than that, they would put them on the list. It's. It's a very rare thing to have a movie shot in sequence. So it's and that is noteworthy to make a list for. Yes, yeah. lists good. We've already lists, decided that lists are really good. Um. So anyway, production shooting <clears throat> doesn't take as long as your imagination tells you it takes. But right. however, post production comes. There's something I read that says after the director and the actors, the most important person in any movie making process yep. is the editor. Yeah. Movies are actually made by the editor. Yeah. Good, good editing. That's why there is a category for it in the Oscars and good editing can change a, a movie. There. Oh yeah. And I'm trying to think, I recently saw a movie that was like, this is terrible. And it's because of the editing. I can't remember what it was. This is the idea that the editor actually can bring the directors and maybe the writers vision alive. Like they're the ones that take all these disparate elements, all these long takes, all these flop lines, even maybe, or ad libs or, you know, innovations that happen on set. And they say, this works, this doesn't work. This is you losing the point or bearing the lead, or you're, you're just going off way too far a tangent. So like an editor and a director that are hand in hand working together and in sync, 
those are what makes magic, you know? Right. A beautiful thing. And um, something that I look for in movies is continuity. And yeah. if a good editor can cont- keep continuity in a scene, that's that to me is fantastic. And you know it when you don't see it. You yeah. know when you watch a movie and you're like, this doesn't make any narrative sense whatsoever. They're jumping all the place. I have no idea why they're doing this all of a sudden. Like, right. There's no lead up to this. Right. Like, you know and, it when you see bad editing. Yeah, like somebody's getting ready to take a drink of water before they say their lines, and then it cuts to another scene and he doesn't even have the glass in his hand. <laughs> you know, <laughs> They're going through a tunnel and it's day. They get out the other side and it's night. You know, crazy stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but good editing is a it's a big deal. So that's why that gets top billing. And then sometimes. sound editing. Yep. Sound editing is another huge thing. A lot of stuff goes in after. Um, and you'd be surprised. Uh, I don't have a list right in front of me, but you'd be surprised how many movies have um, voiceovers. Yeah. Uh, just, again, listening to commentaries, you hear people talk about how the movie had been wrapped and they were on to bigger and better things. And then they were called back in just to read some lines. Because uh, you mean like sound, actually dubbing it in over there, yeah, dubbing line. dubbing in, um, and sometimes it's incredibly obvious when there's a faraway shot and no boom mic, you know, could be anywhere near them, and the wind is whipping, and you know, a lot of those storm scenes where somebody's yelling during a storm mm-hmm. or talking during a storm, a lot of those are voiceovers, stuff like that, which makes sense, yeah, yeah, and. That's for the story. I feel like a movie can rise and fall, sometimes at least, almost entirely based on the sounds involved. The thing. Like, definitely the music, like, but just like some of the sound effects, like the whole like, <laughs> brrr sound that Inception made popular became yeah. like oh, a cliche for a long time because that was such a huge emotional impact to watch that movie and see that. But even something as classic as Star Wars, like half the people can't remember the lines, but they'll remember the sound of a lightsaber or a blaster. Right, you know, something like that. Darth Vader's breathing, like those sounds. You will, you will never hear the lightsaber sound and not know immediately what that is, and have it bring back every memory from your childhood. You know, right, right. Audio mixing, the lost art or un- unappreciated art. Uh, I think it was Kids in Hall. It might not have been actually. It was uh, there was another comedy troupe um, in the mid nineties. I think they were on Comedy Central. It might have been on MTV. They did a skit on. Foley sound engineers and like how they come up with some of the sounds that they come up with. It was, uh, it was hilarious. I, I God, I can't remember the name. I'm going to have to look them up now, but, um, pretty funny, pretty funny to <laughs> see them come up with like slapping watermelons and <laughs> you know, jumping off stairs and falling downstairs and stuff like that. But anyway, so post-production editing sound and video, um, a lot of CG. That's that's where computer graphics have really right. taken over. Because a lot of these green screen filmed with green screen. A lot of uh, a lot of stuff with uh, creatures and things like that. Will like uh, I was listening to um, Ahmad Best who did Jar Jar Binks, and he was one of the first. Um, could have been the first. No, not it wouldn't have been the first. Obviously not. But as far as CG and a green screen goes. It's funny, he was telling this story about uh, being Jar Jar Binks, and <laughs> he was... So the actors actually have to talk to this tennis ball on a stick. Yeah, I was going to say, tennis ball on a stick. Tennis ball on a stick, and that's where Jar Jar's head is. 
So Ahmad Best would actually be reading his lines off camera, and the actors that were trying to reply to Jar Jar Binks would actually turn and reply to Ahmad Best, who was off screen. <laughs> and they'd have to cut. No. <laughs> no, you're talking to the tennis ball. You're Damn not- it, Liam. How many times do we have to go over this? Yeah. And I guess it was enough of a problem where they made a, you know, they had to stop everything and learn how to act again for a second. <laughs> There was a story I heard about Ian McKellen when he was making the last couple of those Hobbit movies. Like, yeah. not the Lord of the Rings, but the actual Hobbit. That yep. he just started hating life. Because he spent the last decade and a half or so talking to tennis balls and standing in front of green screens. Yeah, He's like, I'm a classically trained actor, goddammit. This is killing me. <laughs> like, I can't take this anymore. Oh, uh, yeah. That's funny. But, uh, yeah, CG is taken over. And uh, Mad Max Fury Road, the practical effects that are in that versus the lack of CG is just absolutely amazing. Which was what made that movie just head and shoulders above everything else that came out around it, you know? Yeah. Yep. Like, get and- back to the practical effects. I, I realize that it's more expensive. And you have, like, industry jokes such as Waterworld, which <laughs> I think to date is still the most expensive movie set ever created. And the movie bombed. Yeah. So, yeah, I get it. But you know what? A bad script's a bad script. Don't blame your freaking props. You know? Right. And also, to be clear, I'm a fan of CG. I, I like CG. Sparingly. Uh, well, I would say that if if they can create an environment that is completely CG that they pull off, I'm I'm a fan because they're able to go places that they just couldn't go before. I just feel like movies that are heavy CG skim on, like Avatar was beautiful. Like that was a CG masterpiece. I'm not a fan. It was crappy script, bad pacing, cliche, you know, bullshit political message, whatever you want to call it. It just it. It's like it's like they have to have one or the other. They spend every cent of the budget they have on the CG, and they say, "All right, get some kind of weird monkey in here to write up a script, and we'll call it good." Yeah, and nobody's gonna care. Yeah, um, I guess CG faces are hard for me to get past. Um, the spoiler alert: Princess Leia and Rogue One <laughs> was Target. really. Really, really good. Tarkin, uh... He did better because he stayed in the shadows most of the time. He did, but they also could have done a lot more practical stuff had they chosen different camera angles. And they could have found somebody and filmed over their shoulder and just had, like, one or two seconds on their face. And you would have been like, okay, I buy it. That's Tarkin. Good. Let's move on. Um, CG makeup should be a thing. You know, get a regular actor and just touch up a couple of his features with CG. Right, right. Mm. So, but maybe uh, it is. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's how they do it. I don't know. It, it looked pretty. Tarkin, Tarkin was hard to get past, but I did. Uh, I thought Tarkin did, was better than Leia. Leia was like immediately like, okay. I mean, not that like you obviously knew Carrie Fisher didn't look like that anymore, but still. You're just right. like, okay, that's, that's, I'm watching a video game. This is a complete CGI recreation. Right, and which they, they have not gotten it right at all. Video it's called game. The Uncanny Valley, that, that little gap that keeps us from getting confused with from CG from real life. Mm-hmm. Like if, it gets, if a CG gets too close to real life, it becomes creepy because it's almost there, but it's obviously not. There's some quality that's missing. Like the that Final Fantasy movie. Too creepy, yeah. Yeah, in virtually all video games. I think are rotten the way they portray human faces and mannerisms and stuff like that. And I understand that it's an evolving industry, so I don't hold it against them. It's just, it's hard for me to watch. Anytime I see in a video game, a cut scene or anything like that, where they're trying to do emotions in a human's face and they are so close. I don't like it. 
I agree with you, except for one exception, The Witcher 3. If you're a gamer, you know what I'm talking about. They did a fantastic job with most of that CG stuff. Because there's boobs? Well, I mean, boobs makes everything better. But even okay. beyond that, <laughs> I mean everything. You cannot tell me something that boobs does not make it better. And if you do, you're thought too hard about this, and you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> I was thinking a funeral, but no. You should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> I and know. yes, boobs will make a funeral better. I don't care who's. The Pope dies, put boobs out there, people will feel better about themselves. <laughs> uh, so CG, CGI, um, changing post-production. Boobs. boobs. CG boobs. Still pretty cool. Still, still boobs. Um, if silicone can be boobs, CG can be boobs. I'm sorry. It's the same thing. So, so one thing I wanted to mention before you wrap it up, because you get into the post-production and all that good stuff, I want to talk about the uh, the three-act when you write the screenplay. Yeah. So um, there's a process within the process, I think, is probably what we're getting at. That uh, in the screenwriting post or the pre-production, when the screenplay is getting refined, which um, if you were writing your own screenplay, you can pay people to do rewrites. <laughs> That's one of the things <laughs> yes. I was looking at was... Um, especially if you're doing an indie film, there are actually people that specialize in rewrites and you can pay them. Uh, I think it was something like 20 bucks an hour for f- 10, 15 hours or something like that. Um, I feel it's like, like these are the people that are like the Hollywood parasites. Like they got to be spit on by anybody that's a serious screenwriter in Hollywood. Right. The rewrite people got to be like the, the, like the drags, you know, like the scum of the bottom of the shit. <laughs> I just feel like that's got to be with the life they lead, you know? Yeah, probably. But Anyway, that it's that's a occupation. Yeah, but but anyway, let's let's talk about writing a script. Well, not to delve too deep into it, but if you're going to write a screenplay, and really, if you're going to write a story of any kind, if you're writing a book, even a radio drama, whatever you want to do, if you want to make a story, you're gonna stick to the three arc, the three act structure. And there's a debate going on, you know, it has been going on forever about you're not truly creative unless you can break the three act structure. You know, break it in five acts or maybe even ten acts. They, they'll quote something like Shakespeare or something like that. Like, you know, this, he he got away from the three act structure. He he made a bunch of little acts that wove into this rich tapestry. And when you look at it, and this has been debated, no, he didn't. He 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 just broke up the three acts into sections, but it was still three acts. And the oh, I can I can only think I I uh. Pulp Fiction, definitely. And is. that was non-sequential storytelling, but it was still three acts. It still had a introducing the character for the first part. That's called the setup. Mm-hmm. Then you have the confrontation. The I don't remember much from the creative writing class I took in high school, but I remember my teacher called it, I think she called the setup at the first part or maybe introduction. The second part was called the crisis. And then the third part is called the denouement, which is French and pretentious. It, looks, it sounds like if you read a word, it looks like denouement, but it's not. It's denouement. Get it right. Ooh la la. Foyer. It's not foyer. It's foyer. I'm sorry. It is. Foyer. Foyer. But. Burger. <laughs> Royale with cheese. But yes, the denouement is the resolution. It's the downward. So if you look at like a line graph, it goes, starts low, builds up, builds up, builds up, gets to the crisis, and then drops back down with the resolution and the tying up of the storylines if it's, you know, cohesive. It's to the point that ever since high school, almost everything I watch in the back of my head, I'll be like, crisis, every time I see it, because it happens every time. Every story has it. Like when your two main characters who are the buddies go along and they do a heist, but they turn on each other, that's the crisis point. It's going to happen. It has to happen. Yeah. Or else you're not going to have your, it's not going to keep your attention. I've, I have an example of that not working 
in a very recent movie, in a very recent, very popular movie. Which one? Uh, Moana. Okay, so I haven't seen that. You haven't? No, I know. Well, um, in Moana, uh, The Rock plays Maui, and he is the reluctant hero. And Moana um, is the princess who is tasked with finding him. And so they have a very rocky relationship, but then they um, come together, I guess is the best way to put it. They, they have that moment where we're a team now and they're very strong, very, very strong team. The first sign of something going wrong, Maui ditches her and is like, nope, you're terrible. I hate you. Get out of my life. And it's almost off putting how quickly that happens. And it's definitely the crisis moment. It's definitely yeah, the yeah. moment where you're like crisis. And, um, it happens, you know, in such a weird way that it, it's confusing. It's not confusing to my children. They, <laughs> they lap it up. But, um, to me watching it and probably to many adults watching it, it's like, wow, you were just all like, I would die for you. I would take a bullet for you. And now all of a sudden at the very first sign of danger, you're like, peace, I'm out. This isn't working. I hate you. So it's it's strange. It, it's almost non-organic, Contrived. I guess. Yeah, and um, I can think of other movies where similar things happen. That there's a crisis, and it makes perfect sense. Yeah. So, and in most movies, most good movies, I'd say, um, like all of the Batman's, Christian Bale, and mm-hmm. uh, there's always that crisis moment that actually, when it happens, you're like, well, that makes sense. And that's it, the crisis comes in different flavors. Definitely, but there's always a crisis because that's what the audience expects. That's what we, you don't want to watch, even with the most boring, mundane, dry, you know, master how, masterpiece theater drama, you're still going to get that. You're still going to get the introduction of the characters, the central plot, the central contention, the crisis moment where, you know, they've run out of tea in the dinner party. That's still your crisis moment. All right. And then the resolution where the maid comes in, and, no, no, I had tea all along. We're fine. <laughs> I mean, as mundane, as stupid as that sounds, you're going to always have that. You can never break that mold. Never. I, I, I challenge anybody to think of an example, at least an example of a successful movie that anybody bothered to watch and think anything well of that broke that mold, that didn't have a crisis moment, that from start to finish, everybody was friends with each other. There was never a problem to overcome. There was never a point where you're, as an audience, might be supposed to believe, how are they going to get past this? Mm-hmm. Even though, you know, you always know they will, but... Unless it's a Joss Whedon joint. <laughs> No, Joss Whedon has his crises too. I know, but not everybody's going to make it. No, 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 exactly. <laughs> but it will be resolved in one. And some of the best movies. Be, that's right. It'll be resolved. It just might be resolved with a main character being stabbed through the heart. Exactly. And that's some of the best movies. Some of my favorite movies, the ones where the bad guy wins. It's still a resolution. It's still, they hit the crisis moment. Somebody came out on top. It just wasn't who you expected or wanted, maybe. But And it, it brings it back to, there's a, some, in, in some of my research, I hit a, the idea that if you're doing an indie movie, if like your your resolute your um introduction, maybe a half hour, your resolution, your denouement, maybe another half hour, the middle part, the actual contention, the plot points, the uh, the crisis, that's your bulk, that's your hour long or more, depending on your movie. If you're doing an indie movie, if you're making a script and you don't have somebody famous in it, and I guess this is a Hollywood golden rule, you don't have a famous actor. You better have something amazing in your first 10 minutes or you're done. Your Dinoma you better, better be dynamite. Not, not the Dinoma. Your, res, your first 10 minutes. Oh, first 10 minutes. Your first 10 minutes better be have a hook to it, have something amazing, something to grab the audience. Like this has literally happened to people like at Cannes or Tribeca, you know, one of these like film festivals. 
Sundance, something like that, where they try to show these movies of backers to try to get some money, mm-hmm. and they'll get up and walk out if, if within the first 10, 15 minutes if they just haven't been amazed, yeah. if they haven't been interested in it. And they might have the greatest script in the world, the best, tightest narrative ever created, but they can't keep your interest in the first 10 to 15 minutes, and you're done. Slumdog Millionaire. The way you get away from that is have somebody famous, your Scarlett Johansson's or your Brad Pitt's or your, right. you know, more Robert Downey Jr., somebody that has a lot of cachet that the audience is willing to say, okay, I'm not... I'll stick around that. because this person that I'm familiar with is going to do something interesting. Yeah. Scott Johansson might bounce around the screen a little bit. I'm willing to stick around to see that. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Ryan Reynolds is going to say something funny and kill somebody? Okay, I'll watch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, okay, he spent the first half hour moping in his bedroom, but this is Ryan Reynolds. He's going to do something funny at some point, so I'm going to watch it. Right. Or else he wouldn't have done this movie. You know, something like that. He's going to talk to his dog and cat and kill somebody. <laughs> That's an actual movie. Or he's going to get that Green Lantern suit on, and I'm going to love this. <laughs> Which everybody did. Oh, <laughs> uh, Yeah. This is nobody that didn't like that movie at all. Everybody loved the Green Lantern movie. <sighs> yeah, this is. I find that fascinating that there's. It's almost a physical law of how to write a screenplay. You got to have the three act structure. They got to be certain lengths at certain points. You're not going to get away from it. Yeah, and that's probably a holdover from the golden age of cinema. Yeah, maybe. I think it might just be human nature storytelling this is a chicken and egg argument but i really think it's the chicken i don't know which which one would be which but this is something like i think stories evolve this way because that's how we that's how we take in fiction that's how we pay attention and become invested in in something that's imaginary well i think that is it's a good way to wrap this up all right well was there anything about post-production that you haven't said because i did kind of jump in at the end no that's okay i um post-production is yeah um, distribution a, well d- distribution um i think i covered a little bit with the uh, the old days but <clears throat> distribution yeah. is the the final the final cog and distribution is handled by a company that is um not just by law it's going to be handled by a company that's not the studio that filmed it um to some degree there are ways around that uh Disney. Like a super pack. Disney, Buena Vista Studios. <laughs> um, but it's it's not typically done by the same company. Um, so you have companies that distribute uh, to the theaters and they set prices. They set... Well, there'll be a set price, but they're going to set uh, the percentage that's cut, mm. which is typically 50-50 with the theater. But... Um, you know, everybody has to get their cut and distribution is changing now that, um, oh, that's another thing we didn't talk about was marketing. The distributors will um, determine the, the amount of the budget that it'll be contracted <clears throat> in the early stages. Um, the distributors will figure out how much of the budget is going to go to marketing. And now I, well, I believe we talked about this before, whereas I, I said that if you, you have a certain budget, a strict budget you got to stick to. And you have a choice between maybe a little extra CGI or another rewrite in the script to make it even better or marketing. You're better off spending that money on marketing. Agreed. There's, um, oh, 
let's see, see if I can find it. it. There's a slew of movies in the Redbox machine that you've never heard of with some very famous people in it. And there's a reason why you haven't heard of it, just because it's got that famous person in it. Like, uh, there's a Tom Hanks movie that just came out on DVD this past year. Um, something about a hologram, hologram of the king or something like that. I don't know. It's it's wackadoo, and you've never heard of it for a reason. Well, there's a... Um... Stephen King's book, The Cell, about yep. cell phones making every zombies, came out. It has John Cusack and Samuel L. Jackson in it. Never even realized it was being made. It, it, I don't know if it went to theaters or straight to video or what, but a Stephen King film with two A-list actors, and nobody ever heard of this thing. Yeah. well, like It's completely under the radar. And, and you touched on it a little bit, that they will play these, they'll do limited engagements, limited release, um, they'll they'll play a movie at the Tribeca Film Festival, and nobody will like it. Mm-hmm. So the budget for marketing will go in the tanks, and this thing will go direct to DVD or something along those Try lines. Try to recoup some of them yeah. to recoup, and and they do make a, a movies like a the bulk of movies um, make their money on the DVD sales. I, I saw a percentage. I I don't have it in front of me, but it's. Like thirty six percent of money or revenue from movies comes from being actually in the movie theater, and almost the not the rest of it completely, but a huge portion of the rest goes to um, comes from DVD sales. So that's why they're so angry about piracy and things along those lines because <laughs> it hits them where they yep. where they think it hits them in the wallet. Unfortunately, there's a lot of other things to consider for them that there are people that are watching the movie that never would have spent a dime on it anyway. Exactly. That's, that's how I always, that's how I was justified to myself. Yeah. Like, when I was doing torrents, I would always say either it's a movie I already paid for, or it's a movie I would never pay for otherwise. So they're not actually being denied my money. Right. Um, but as far as distribution goes, uh, they would, they'll do the marketing. They'll do the standees in the theater. They'll do the, viral videos on YouTube, which don't even get me started. It makes me so angry <laughs> if I want to watch a movie trailer, which we've talked about trailers before. And being their own, <laughs> I know what you're going to say. Small, small bit of entertainment themselves, but it infuriates me that I have to watch a commercial in order to watch a trailer on YouTube. <laughs> I got to watch a commercial to watch a commercial. <laughs> oh my God, I hate that so much. You can't even skip it anymore. It's getting more and more like, oh, yeah, it's just 20 seconds. Like, yeah. that's 20 seconds of my life. I'm not going to get back. Right. Screw you. I'm clicking away. And if you're going to advertise to me for 20 seconds, please make it something that I'm interested in. Don't make it like like some feminine yeast infection yeah. cream you know, or something like that, which I, I'm telling you, one of the things, that, one of the games I'm playing right now, they advertise to me, and it's uh, Dove Body Wash for Women. <laughs> That's like the number one advertiser. I'm like, seriously, I might just go buy this because they advertise it so much. So it could work. But so they know something about me that I don't know. Maybe I should just right. go with it. They just passed a law in Congress, like eliminating the protections for ISPs selling your information for advertising. I'm saying like, good. Maybe yeah. I should see something I want now. Right. When were they going to get on this? You know, I, how else are they going to know my brands? <laughs> I'm sick of seeing minivan commercials. I can't take this anymore. I'm not going to buy a minivan. <laughs> Stop trying to advertise this crap to me. Yeah. But um, so the distribution company, again, they do all the marketing. They do uh, the YouTube videos and the the previews, the trailers, the uh, one sheets, which are highly collectible. 
Um, and there's a secondary market for that type of memorabilia, especially the one sheets, which are, I have one behind me here. That's so, a one. That's an actual one sheet from a movie theater for Ronan. So, wait a minute, you would just say poster? No, it's more than a poster. A one oh, sheet. A one I'm sheet. <laughs> uh, it's a movie poster. I guess if you wanted to be, uh, what's the term in French that sounds denouement, 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 denouement. Yeah. So you say your denouement bullshit. And I'll call this goddamn thing a fucking one sheet. I guess we're uh, both gonna write one fanciness for the for the night. Uh, no, a one sheet is a different size than a standard poster. It's bigger. Um, it is. Uh, it's two sided. I guess it's it's made in such a way that it's three D. Where if it's backlit, it looks different than uh, oh. standard. It's it's. I don't want to pull it down because it's already starting to come down a little bit. But. Um, Legit one sheet movie posters are better quality. They're they're I I don't want to call it 3D. I don't know. It's printed reverse on the back side, so if it's lit from behind, it looks different. That's that's the only way I can put it. But they offended you, and I I want to apologize. No, there's (laughs) there's no need to apologize. Um, my uh, I'm married to somebody that used to manage a theater, and so she has. They used to. they you know they used to take home the memorabilia and stuff like that and they'd Mm. they'd have to put their names in like she couldn't just take whatever she wanted she had to like put her name stuff so we have we have a bunch of stuff yeah kind of like that but um we have some good stuff but there's a secondary market for that it's very very expensive to get actual one sheets like on ebay you anybody can get a movie poster any any hobo off the street can get a movie poster (laughs) but Maybe the unwashed masses, the dregs. Yeah, um, but they're they're the things that you see in the movie theater inside the glass case with the lights behind them. Oh, like I got you. So, um, but they're expensive, and if you think about how many movie theaters there are in the United States and how many movie theaters this thing's going to play at, and you've got to have you know three or four of these one sheets per movie theater, and you know, that's got to be budgeted for. If you're going to have a giant cardboard cutout that's tall, you know, 10 feet tall, that's going to sit in the movie theater for five or six weeks, eight weeks, whatever it is, uh, you got to pay for that. How many movie theaters are there? And so that's ever, all. This is a maybe a bit of a tangent, but you ever wonder what's the effectiveness of that advertising? Like maybe there's people that don't know what they're going to see when they get to the theater, but if there are, I don't know. I don't know anybody that goes to the theater just saying, well, what's playing? Okay, this giant cardboard cutout of uh, you know Brad Pitt's going to get me into that new Brad Pitt movie. I was undecided until I saw that. Like I just don't. Like, well, uh, it's all viral, I guess is the best way to put it. And they're getting really, really smart. They're making these standees interactive. <laughs> so, um, like uh, Deadpool, the Deadpool cardboard standee. It wasn't. It had like a couch that you could sit on and sit next to Deadpool. And so let's just say, for example, that there's a cardboard cutout for Boss Baby, which we did see last week, and it's fantastic. Mm. I yeah, <laughs> uh, but my kids loved it. Anyway, so next to the Boss Baby head, there's a, a hole cutout for you to stick your face in. So you stick your face in that cardboard cutout. Somebody snaps a picture of you. You put it on Facebook. Ha ha, look at me. So it's like free advertising. It's absolutely free advertising. How many people are going to walk over there and stick their head through that hole and and put it on Facebook and say, guess what we're seeing today? Or 
who's who isn't going to go sit on the couch next to Deadpool, the life-size Deadpool, put your arm around it and have your picture right. taken. Say, mm-hmm. I'm at Deadpool. So it's start. they're starting to get really interactive. Um, there have been, been some really cool ones. Uh, every once in a while on Craigslist, I'll be looking up memorabilia and things along those lines, and I'll, I'll come across somebody who's worked at a movie theater that's got a garage full of giant cardboard standees for movies and it's like wow i'd love to have that but where the fuck would i put that (laughs) you know what i mean like it would have to be extra spare bedroom for standees yeah (laughs) but you know i mean i'm sure you could google it right now and find people that have uh, tons of these things just tons of them but anyway horrible horrible things with them and put it online well whatever there's something about mary (laughs) uh just true to the script um, but that's that's the marketing in a nutshell, and and you know everybody's got to get their cut, and that would have been explored in pre-production. The mm. the the budgeting would have been. Um, there's actually uh, we've talked about it before, but I'd love to discuss it for a second. Is there's a an old game for the Mac called Sim Cinema, and there might be a port for the PC. I don't know, but it's a fairly old game, and I don't think that they've updated it much. But Sim Cinema was a sim game just like sim city and all those other sim whatever sim farm but you had a movie production studio and you had uh you had to do all these steps that we've just talked about you had to conceptualize a film and give it attributes you had to find actors and actresses of course this was all fake it was all fiction so you had to come Mm -hmm. up with these names uh, or they had names that you had to choose, but you had a budget. You know what I mean. You had to you had to stay in budget. You had to have a good script. You had to have a good name. That was another thing. And I don't know, I don't know how they did it, but there must have been like buzzword buzzwords that if you had them in the title, it would then propel your movie to a different you know level of the game. But uh, hmm. so you had to. It, there's probably a YouTube video of it out there of somebody playing it. This gameplay oh, sure. of everybody on YouTube. But uh, anyway, so. Then you had to budget for advertising. You had to budget for marketing. You had to budget for all these things. And if you fell, if you if you went over budget, they canceled your movie. And it was like they <laughs> fire you. They'd fire you and bring somebody else in to complete it and whatever. But uh, the goal was obviously to have a a blockbuster, hmm. and uh, that was just part of the game. And it was fun. It was really fun. Sim Cinema. For everybody that wanted to make their own movie but didn't want to finance it with their maxed out credit cards. That's right. Clerks. <laughs> uh, so that's how movies get made. Now we've ruined the magic for you. Yep. It's not doesn't get dropped down in a golden egg and sprinkled with fairy dust and boom, Avengers. Nope, doesn't happen that way. <laughs> One thing we didn't talk about. Maybe Miss Doubtfire did that. I don't know. I'm sure it did. Peeking behind that curtain. Peeking something. Uh... A lot of what we see now in cinema uh, has been influenced by television. Um, we talked mm. about it just a little teeny bit back there at the beginning, but um, television and the competition of television has really had an effect on cinema. Well, I feel like television's beating the pants off of cinema right now, so yeah, makes sense. And, and it hasn't always, but this this is time. Their time has come, and for a long time, I. I want to say that there was an actual thing. It might've been called something, but people didn't double dip. If you were a television actor, you were a television actor. You didn't. Oh, right, movies, right. And vice versa. 
but I think that that has kind of fallen it's by the wayside. Still, Alyssa's comment: If you see somebody that's been nothing but a movie actor their entire career start doing a TV show, that will be a talking point, some kind of press release or something like that. Yeah, I guarantee it. Slumming it. Um, and it's not truly uncommon for television actors to take the step up to cinema. I guess that that's way, way more common now. Right. Like in the last 10, 15 years, you're going to see a lot of television actors in movies. Um, Jennifer Aniston. Um, it's almost perfunctory at this point. Like, uh, I think her name is Sophie Turner. Whoever plays Sansa on Game of Thrones, boom, all of a sudden she's in an X-Men movie. Just because she's pop- if you're popular on TV, they're going to throw you in a movie. Yeah, even uh, Adam Driver, who played uh, Kylo Ren in the new Star Wars movies, was I guess in that TV show Girls, which I had never watched, but from what I understand, he's in it. So, yeah, if you're in a, even remotely popular TV show, you're going to find your way into a movie at some point. Yeah, I I'd like to look that up. Maybe talk about it on a different podcast, a yeah. future podcast, just because it was it was a thing. I remember it being a thing that you didn't you didn't dip your toes. In the Monday milk. No, never dip yourself in the Monday milk. <laughs> um, but that's it. All right. Um, let's move on. Let's do some uh, let's do trivia. Some, some trivia, and then we can wrap it up. All right. We got to test each other. Okay. I um, I'll go first, simply okay. because I fucked it up last time so bad that I feel like <laughs> I need to redeem myself. Uh, oh, you got this. Floating like a butterfly. Sting like a bee. John Quincy Adams. Okay. Do you know who he is? He was the son of John Adams. Yes. Was he the fourth president? No. See, I could get, it's like George Washington, John Adams, James Madison. No, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, James Monroe, then Quincy, I think. Okay. So sixth or seventh? What was that? Seventh. I should have counted as I did it, right? Sixth. Six. He was the sixth president. Fifth. Ninth? Sixth. Down. Set. Hut. Anyway, John Quincy, John Quincy Adams uh, had a unique pet oh. in the White House. What was his pet? Uh, this feels like something I knew at one point and forgot. Really? Um, I didn't know it. This is something that was... After I answer it and get it wrong, I do have a fact to it about John Quincy Adams. I don't want to say... It's okay. I'm going to say chimpanzee. No. Let me say it was a very... Well, a chimpanzee could be dangerous. Uh, a dangerous pet. A wolverine. <laughs> that would be awesome. No. An alligator. Really? In the White House? Yeah, he had a pet alligator. <laughs> Good for him. Well, he also, this is, I learned this, he funded an expedition to try to find people living beneath the surface of the, surface of the world, like mole people. I love that. Like it's a journey to the center of the earth type situation. We need more. We need, taxpayer money. we need a new president just like him. We need John Quincy Adams back in the White House. I want a president that, that's his campaign, campaign platform. It's like, you elect me and I will find the mole people. We will eradicate the mole people. <laughs> The mole people are the problems for everything. Right. Screw ISIS in North Korea. We've got mole people problems. I think Bashar Assad is a mole person. That's why we got to get rid of the mole people. <laughs> That's great. I would vote for that guy in a second because it would be a guy. It wouldn't be a girl. Right. Let's be honest. A woman would not be after the mole people. It would be a total guy. <laughs> Jose Chung's from Outer Space. Absolute favorite <laughs> X Files episode. Go watch it. Everybody. Everybody that's watching, go watch it. Listening. Anybody that's listening. If you're watching, listen to it. If you're listening, go watch it. If you're watching, then you're creepy because you shouldn't be watching in any way, shape, or form. You're a stalker. 
But what if they're closing their eyes and they're imagining us talk? That's technically watching it. Well, that's what I do. And then other things at the same time. Anyway. <laughs> okay. Uh, John Quincy Adams had an alligator as a pet. But I'm bumped. What was the name of the alligator? Did it say? Oh, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't see what it was. I, I imagine it's something clever. I mean, something just totally asinine. Like, I don't know, Hamlet Vaughn Sugar Snap or something. That would be the greatest alligator name ever. <laughs> yeah. Hamlet Von Sugar Snap. Yeah. I want an alligator just like a name of that. <laughs> okay. For no other reason. Okay. All right. So my question, and I don't know. I have if you don't get it, I I got a hit for you that should tip it off. Okay. Thinking about this. That's no pressure. So there is a um a condition, a phobia called gymnophobia. I think it's pronounced gymnophobia. It looks like it. G Y M nophobia. What would you think? This would be a fear of uh, Denoma. Fear of Denoma. Fear of pretentious <laughs> French words. Yes, you got it. <laughs> Yay! Uh, I would say that it would be fear of the gymnasium, but yeah. then the the realist in me wants to say that it's a fear of people named Jim. There's a well, it's GYM. I would say you're almost you're you're like kissing cousins away when you say fear of gymnasium. There's it's related in some way for somebody. I guarantee it. Let's say this. This is my hint for you. Okay. It will cause you to wear cut-off jean shorts in inappropriate places. <laughs> a never nude? Fear never of nude. the locker room. Fear of the fear locker room. Of, fear of nude bodies. Oh, okay. Fear of nude bodies. It is yeah. the, it's the never nude condition. Like, you're just afraid to be naked. Fear of having a nude body around you. Yeah. Anyway. I'm a never nude, too. Gymnophobia. <laughs> Gymnophobia. Fear of being in the presence of naked people. That's right. <sighs> Maybe some of us are more inadvertent gymnophobias than they don't want to be. I'll say that I'm a partial gymnophobia-ist. Gym, gym, I, have, I, I don't want to be around a lot of naked people. Well, it's just fear of naked bodies. So I would say as long as the naked body is not me, I'm fine with it. <laughs> I'm not afraid of naked bodies. There's fun that I prefer not to see, but... I have sat and watched too many suicide watches to really oh say God. that I don't mind yeah. being around naked people. That, that's going to burn the fear. That's like immersion therapy right there. Yeah, I've just... seen some naked people do some stupid shit before in my time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one day documented, we'll... documented it in legal documents. Yes. Something that's that in a court of law you would have to say in front of a jury this is legit. I would actually have to say this in front of a jury if it came up. I have seen somebody break apart a styrofoam tray and shove all the pieces in their butt. Oh, yes. Let's see. One of the entries I made in a log was lying on back with angles behind ears, probing rectum with index finger. That is on a legal document somewhere. I was and bored was, and I said, was you know what? I am going to... It was, I'm going to put the truth. I'm going to put down the truth. That was in your own bedroom. <laughs> I had nothing to do I'm with it. I'm talking myself all the time. Day one. Nobody's joined me yet. We'll continue yeah. in the hopes. Oh. <laughs> Sitting on toilet masturbating. That is... that is. I never miss an opportunity to write that in a log. <laughs> day three. I thought I heard something at my window. Finished early. We'll get back to you on day four. Uh, skipped right to day five. Not even sure if there was a day four. <laughs> all I know is there's extra chafing. <laughs> this has really got off the rails. <laughs> Uh, it has, but we should really do a podcast about working at a jail. And then masturbating. Well, I mean, it goes without saying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, next week. <laughs> I just got the picture in my head. I can't. Who's somebody... there? Stay there! I'm almost done! Uh, 
<laughs> Nobody's going to know what we're talking about. I love oh, it. Terrible. So, yeah, I think this was a fantastic topic, and um, I hope... <laughs> Hope we I didn't hope, lose you at the end. I hope we didn't lose you at the end there, but uh, it's fun. Until next week, when we talk about... Something. Uh, we'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll figure it out and get back to you. It'll probably <laughs> not be uh, suicide butt probing. <laughs> but we can guarantee Su- it. Suicidal butt probers, part two. <laughs> Everything you thought you didn't want to know, but you're gonna know anyways. That'd be the that'd be a great B movie. Suicidal <laughs> butt probers. I feel like that is a B movie somewhere. I'd watch it. Suicidal butt probers from space. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why do they always butt probe the rednecks from the trailer park? That's what I want to know. Easy access. Yeah, that's right. Nobody's gonna believe this guy. Oh wait, no. The, pan- the pants are half off anyways. It's like you know what? We had a limited budget. <laughs> Yeah, we can only fly down. We can only fly down here in our flying saucer and get one person. So we chose you, Bubba. <laughs> chose Congratulations, you, Bubba. you're gonna be yeah. famous. Uh, going in dry. <laughs> no, you won't. I'm wet already. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right, and on that note, I'm Tom with him. I'm Dana. I'm no, you're Dana. You're, I'm Bob Scully. You're Bob Scully. I am Bob Scully. I am uh, Frank Mulder. Hamlet von Sugar Snaps. Hamlet von Sugar Snaps. Alligator Extraordinaire. Yeah. Rawr. Uh, <laughs> until next time, dip me in your Monday milk. Dip me in your Monday milk. All right. See ya. Bye bye.